This is the Airplane Geeks Podcast. We aim to educate and inform you, explore and expand your passion for aviation, and entertain you a little along the way. This episode, we talk with the Managing Director and Head of Aerospace Leasing at AE Industrial Partners about aircraft leasing. In the news, Southwest flight attendants will have to vote again on the proposed labor contract. The YouTuber who crashed his plane in a video stunt is flying again. The FAA issues an NPRM for the 737NG nacelle retrofit program. Meanwhile, another NPRM is out for the PW1100G engine inspections. Also, DOT fines Southwest Airlines $150 million, and a new museum is created for World War II crashes flying over the hump. It's all coming up right now. Welcome to the Airplane Geeks Podcast. This is episode 779 of the show where we talk aviation. I'm Max Flight, and with me is David Vanderhoof, our aviation historian from the American Helicopter Museum. Happy holidays, all. This is our last one for 2023. My goal for 2024 is to be on the show a lot more <laughs> yes. in a challenging year. Um, but looking forward to a, a great conversation. We've already had a good conversation pre-show, so I'm looking forward to an even better one live. Absolutely. Also with us is Rob Mark, contributing editor to Business and Commercial Aviation, part of the Aviation Week group. He's a BizJet pilot, a CFI. He's been an air traffic controller, and now he publishes the JetWine blog. And I honestly, for those people that are wondering, no, I'm not good at holding a job. So uh, <laughs> it's, but I'm I'm looking forward to making that better in 2024. Uh, but uh, hey, listen, Merry Christmas! In case I forget to say it later to everybody, uh, Happy Hanukkah and Happy whatever other celebrations you might be having at this time of the year. You know, Rob, I said now he publishes the Jetwine blog. Which sounds like it's something recent, but uh, yeah. Right. How, no, it's when did when did you start with Jet Two thousand and six. Two thousand six. Okay. Yeah, before this crummy. Sh- I mean, before this excellent podcast uh, began uh, uh, began operation. Yeah, uh, by two years. Sorry, that slipped. Just I don't slipped know out. Yeah. How okay. that happened? Um, <laughs> Who knows? Do, did you tell our guests that they need a sense of humor? Um, I think he's figured it out by now. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. That's good. That's good. All right. And our guest. If he has it, he's in trouble. That's right. <laughs> our guest is Nathan Dickstein. He's Managing Director and Head of Aerospace Leasing at AE Industrial Partners. Now, uh, through its aerospace leasing platform, AEI invests in aircraft serving a variety of purposes, including commercial aviation, business aviation, and specialty missions. Now, Nathan focuses on the origination and management of aircraft leases, engine leasing pools, and related aerospace investments. He's got more than 12 years of industry experience investing in aircraft and engine leasing at investment funds, banks, and leasing companies. So, Nathan, welcome to the Airplane Geeks podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Looking forward to it. 
Well, we're going to talk about the aircraft leasing market and um, some other uh, interesting things. Nathan's going to help us with that. But first, we've got the week's aviation news. Is everyone ready? Ready from Delaware. In the Midwest, we are. First story. This comes from PaddleYourOwnCanoe.com. Southwest Airlines flight attendants forced a rerun contract vote after crew discovered ballot system was vulnerable to fraud. Oh, my gosh. Rob, the Trans- uh, Transport Workers Union Local 556, they represent the flight attendants at Southwest Airlines. And these contract negotiations have been going on for for years. Recently, they had a vote. Ninety-five percent of the eligible union members voted, but they soundly rejected the proposed contract. But that wasn't the end of the drama, was it, Rob? <laughs> no, actually, the uh, the flight attendants at Southwest have been uh, uh, in contract negotiations, or what I call it, contract disputes. Uh, no, I guess you have to have a contract in order to have a dispute. But uh, they've been at it with uh, Southwest for five years. And, uh, of course, they they really thought they had made some headway this time with the, uh, uh, you know, getting 95% of uh, an eligible population to vote. This That is unbelievable in any kind of an election. And... uh, uh, but again, uh, the vast majority of them said, no, we don't like this contract. And um, I, I talked to a, a friend of mine that's uh, a flight attendant at Southwest, and she said that uh, uh, we voted the contract down because of work rules, not money. They wanted a, a drop-dead clause uh, with no gray verbiage uh, about various uh, work issues, and, and the company did not want to give them that. But she did mention something that... I didn't know. Uh, pilots have a clause in their contract that if um, if the uh, union votes to uh, send a contract to the workers to, to for ratification, and the vast majority of them turn it down, they dump the uh, the uh, union negotiators and they start with fresh ones, as opposed to saying, "Well, go back to the." bargaining table and start over again she said oh if only we had that meaning the flight attendants <laughs> um but anyway so at some point one of the uh, flight attendants said something is squirrely with this balloting system and it was enough of a uh, a tip to cause the union to dig into it a little further and they found out that uh, there were some um, irregularities in the in the voting system and uh, that it could leave it uh, vulnerable to fraud. And uh, the company, uh, True Ballot, uh, that uh, ran, it's a third party that ran it for the union, said, nope, things are fine. Um, and just as most, well, a lot of companies would. Many companies would say, oh, my God, we screwed up. I'm sorry. But, of course, it didn't happen that way. And, uh, again, they uh, they found the uh, vulnerabilities in the software and uh, and they found them in the most embarrassing way for this balloting company they uh, they had one of their people on a uh, face no, I'm sorry not a FaceTime a uh, maybe a zoom call or something and they said look right here 
I'll show you our screen, and this is how it works, and you can see it's all on the up and up, and some crafty flight attendant, those flight attendants are crafty, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, they, uh, I mean that with, with all love, ladies and gentlemen, uh, but uh, they, uh, the flight attendant copied down the URL that she saw on True Ballot's uh, screen, and put it in her machine, and it took her to a database that was completely unsecured that she could make all kinds of changes on uh, herself. And they said, "Guys, mm-mm, no, 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 can't, can't do this." So they're in a dispute now with uh, with True Ballot, but they're going to have to run the uh, vote all over again. My guess is it will it will come out uh, very similar to uh, what this one was, but uh, it's kind of. Uh, one more annoyance in the annoyance chain with uh, Southwest and uh, the uh, flight attendants just think that although their comment, and this was a personal comment from a flight attendant that I know, is that the union is still too cozy with the company. So uh, you can take that for whatever it's worth, but uh, it's just one more uh, hang up along the way to getting a contract. Now, of course, we wonder when they go back to the table, does the union, you know, look for uh, more concessions? You know, do they demand more? Uh, but there's federal mediators involved here and the National Mediation Board, uh, which is the organization that arranges this whole process. They, they say that, well, you know, it may take some time to get some new mediators lined up and for this thing to get all all organized and all. So, uh, I don't know, It it doesn't look like or there's the possibility that this is not going to have a, a a quick resolution, especially if they do more than just vote again. Well, of course, see now the now the uh, company knows something it didn't know before, which is that the uh, rank and file hate the contract as it was delivered to them, and so they're going to have to decide, as you said, do they how where do they renegotiate? Where do they budge? Where do they push back on the flight attendants? Uh, but uh, uh, they would. The pilots would never put up with this. But guess what, guys? Uh, without flight attendants, the airplane's not going anywhere either. Yeah. All right. So the saga continues. All right. Next item comes from Avweb. This is Trevor Jacob goes flying on temporary certificate. And uh, Nathan, I don't know if you saw this story, but I think two years ago. This gentleman, Trevor Jacob, a YouTuber, was uh, flying along in his plane and filming himself and then uh, kind of turned into, oh, no, my engine doesn't work. What am I going to do? I guess I better, um, you know, cinch up this parachute that I conveniently happened to have on my back and jump out filming the whole thing along the way. Well... That stunt got uh, the, uh, the attention of uh, many organizations, and of course, you you don't uh, you don't want to crash your airplane intentionally, and then hide evidence afterwards. So he lost his his uh, pilot certificate that was revoked in April 2022, and he was also sentenced to six months in prison for hiding evidence. But Rob, it turns out that. You can go through all that, and that doesn't mean that you can never get your pilot certificate again. I would have thought that uh, being a convicted felon would have 
slowed the process down a little bit uh, somehow, but uh, he did manage to indeed get a uh, a temporary certificate, which means he he must have taken a check ride with some uh, examiner uh, who said, "Here's your temporary. It's good for." Uh, what is it? I think three months, four months. But in the meantime, he can't use it anyway because he's going to be in jail. Uh, <laughs> I just thought, come on, guys. I mean, was this all part of the the YouTube uh, hokiness, uh, or, or or was this was this an extra? Um, but um, again, I I can't believe that. I don't know which is crazier: the fact that. This fellow had the guts to go take the check right again so that he could see if he could pass, or the fact that we're even talking about this, which is, of course, what he wants. I mean, yeah. let's face it. Uh, anyway, the, it's, been a, it's been a year of insane. Uh, now, did you notice in the last story, I didn't make any, any disparaging comments about voter fraud in any other I know you were well arena uh, so uh, I'm going to try to be nice to this guy but personally I don't think he deserves it the guy shouldn't have a certificate as far as I'm concerned but yeah. that's just my two cents so this temporary certificate temporary pilot certificate that's issued what Rob when someone who's passed the written exam completed the check ride and it's temporarily issued. I guess it's good for 120 days, like you. Right. That that's uh, that's very typical. That uh, uh, when you take a check ride, you you are issued a temporary a, a paper certificate until your uh, actual uh, certificate shows up, which looks it's about the size of a plastic uh, credit card, and uh, that usually takes uh, about four months, uh, th- three to four months, to come from Oklahoma City. All right. We'll have a link in the show notes to it. There's a, um, a list. Don't of, send him email in prison. Yeah, right. The FAA. Well, there's the temporary pilot certificate, and uh, this is this is covered under CFR uh, paragraph sixty one dot seventeen, which is very short. Um, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes if you'd like to see what what that's all about. And that that can apply to a temporary pilot, a flight instructor, or a ground instructor certificate or rating and uh, again up to it's issued for up to 120 days um, and then the permanent certificate you know is uh, is issued uh, but we'll have a link to that in the show notes he's never going to get insurance to fly well that's a really good point david <laughs> I, I mean unfortunately i'm i i the insurance the insurance agent in me all of those years um set off a uh, uh, okay who he passed a check ride. Evidently, he's quite a skilled pilot if he's quite capable of crashing an aircraft and surviving it. But I, I'm like Rob. It's like, how is he flying? Who actually wanted to get in an airplane with him to give him a check ride? Yeah, good question. Now that now that is a good point. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, it, it doesn't mention who the examiner was. Would the examiner know the person's history? Um, I think well, certainly because uh, you you have to file through a uh, an electronic system these days, and it asks about previous uh, uh, certificates and whether you've had any Crash. accidents or incidents, and and 
crashes, uh, but but they would see that. Oh, wait a minute! You you had a private certificate. Uh, why are you taking another check ride for a certificate that you already hold? Unless I'm missing something here, and and that's when the pilot would say, "Oh well, they they pulled it on me," um, which in fact I think they did. You know, that's actually another interesting question. If they suspended his certificate, I don't know how he was able to apply for another one. Uh, there's some some fact here that we're missing in this story. I've seen something that points out that uh, he was uh, eligible to reapply after 12 months. 12 months, one year ah, after, that's right. yeah, after the ticket was pulled originally. All right, so let's move on to a couple of items. We have some uh, NPRM uh, items uh, due to some, uh, well, different uh, problems in the cells and engines and things. Um, and it, it may be interesting to see how, you know, Nathan, in, uh, in in your line of work, how you, you know, respond to these kinds of things and how these affect you. But the first one is from Aviation Week. This is FAA starts 737NG nacelle retrofit mandate process. So uh, just to review, there were two incidents, and the uh, NTSB recommended a redesign of that nacelle. And what we have here is the FAA has issued three notices of proposed rulemaking, NPRM, uh, that would mandate a, a plan that's been developed by Boeing and, a, and approved by the agency. But the, the uh, incidents were where, let's see, we would see uh, this was a Southwest Airlines 737-700. There was damage when uh, there was a fan blade failure, and parts from the nacelle struck the fuselage. Okay, that's that's how the nacelles get involved in this. Similarly, uh, another accident, uh, that was in 2018, and one passenger was, was killed. So the uh, NPRMs have been issued... And under this uh, this mandate, operators would have until July 31st, 2028, to upgrade their aircraft with things like new inlet spacers and fasteners, a, fa- a fan cowl support beam, stiffer exhaust nozzle, upgraded inlet aft bulkhead fasteners. And that additionally, by uh, end of year 2029, Boeing would issue the maintenance instructions for all that. And uh, all these changes are intended to keep the fan cowls closed, intact, and attached to the airplane in the event of a uh, fan blade out event. We see those. And, of course, the process is before the, you know, the, the rule can be implemented, any rule can be implemented, it goes through this NPRM process uh, where uh, the public has an opportunity to comment on the, on the, proposed, uh, the proposed rule. You know, Nathan, when when you're um, leasing aircraft, then uh, like an operator, I mean, you could be subject to these kinds of uh, unfortunate events. Uh, does the lessor or the lessee hold responsibility for for compliance with these kinds of directives? It really depends on the situation in the lease. There's you know, if it rises to like an airworthiness directive, a lot of times there is some cost sharing depending on how how much time is remaining in the lease. But, you know, for this one, there's a long compliance period, about five years. I assume it'd be completed during a 
an engine maintenance visit or an airframe heavy check. It sounds like this isn't forcing an event, but some additional work to do at an existing maintenance event, which is easier to manage. Yes, right, right. As opposed to uh, the operator or somebody having to, uh, you know, expend funds right now to do something. Yeah, for example, on an engine, like an airworthiness directive could force an engine off after a set amount of cycles, which is an earlier visit than planned if it was operating without that AD. Right. And, um, yeah, we have the second um, example also from Aviation Week. Um, and uh, this is another NPRM um, that would uh, mandate inspections of the Pratt & Whitney PW1100G engines, uh, one of the geared turbofan engines. And this goes back to uh, a problem that we talked about in the past where some powdered metal uh, was contaminated. I don't think I've ever seen what it was contaminated with. But in any event... The powdered metal was contaminated, and so the you know the resulting uh, finished parts, some some hubs, I think in this case, are are problematic. Their the durability is is an issue, and so this draft rule would mandate uh, increased inspections, largely for uh, for these engines. And this one is a big deal because it's forcing engine visits way earlier than than forecast. You know, unfortunately, there's been a lot of teething issues with, with this new engine technology. But, but it's not even limited to the new engine's uh, a service bulletin on the current technology, the IAE, the V2500 engine on the current A320 family, uh, has a service bulletin coming out for a similar issue that's affecting several hundred engines. And you just think about the knock-on effect of this, finding slots at a maintenance uh, facility that you weren't planning on, removing an engine early, having a spare engine. It's You're seeing the news of several airlines having to park aircraft for, uh, you know, sometimes even up to a year. Yes, which is, uh, <laughs> this is no small uh, uh, you know, financial burden. Uh, Pratt & Whitney estimates that um, these checks, at least the next round of checks, um, this will apply to 430 engines, and that's just on U.S. registered aircraft. And within that group, Pratt believes that 366 will need new high-pressure turbine first-stage hubs, and 351 will need second-stage hubs, also from the high-pressure uh, turbine. And uh, this is get, I mean, this is getting deep into the engine. This is not a, uh, you know, a, a line maintenance kind of an issue. This is a, an engine disassembly kind of an issue. So you're talking about typically, you know, months and months for that, that engine shop visit. And then, uh, you know, on top of all that, there's the issue of uh, is, is the company going to be able to gear up production to the level necessary to support that number of um, hub replacements? It, it's... Uh, uh, it's it's like your your worst nightmare. Yeah, but in couple of that with you know aircraft on on the ground not earning revenue, it it just compounds. <laughs> and and nobody's even spoken about what this is going to end up costing Pratt and Whitney uh, w when it's all over. Yeah, it's it's billions. It's it, I think it's in the billions. And in fact, um, RTX, the parent corporation for Pratt and Whitney, what's what's now called RTX. Um, has um, taken a charge for that on their on their financials. So they've already they've estimated how much it is, and they've already reported that and in, include that in their you know financial projections. But oh boy, all right. 
Another item, uh, this is, uh, well, again, back to uh, Southwest Airlines. And the uh, the U.S. DOT has announced a $140 million civil penalty against Southwest for a number of violations of consumer protection laws. So this is all over the 2022 Christmas holiday, New Year's holiday meltdown that uh, that Southwest experienced. This is where they canceled almost 17,000 flights, stranded over 2 million passengers. So this is a... Um, this is a big penalty, according to this article in, uh, or according to this uh, DOT press release, that this is a uh, penalty that's 30 times larger than any previous DOT penalty for consumer protection violations. So that's not just more than any other company has paid. It's 30 times more than any other company has paid. And what I think is interesting for those people that were around, uh, I know some people in my family were traveling and got caught up in that last year. And uh, the stories that were circulating amongst the, the rank and file, the pilots and the flight attendants, was that the software had been failing for ages and that the airline just didn't want to replace some crew scheduling software and a few other things, and now they got caught with their pants down, and uh, so they uh, they finally uh, had to shut the whole place down for. I forgot, Max. Maybe you could remember what was it? They shut the airline down, I think, completely for four days or something, something like that. Uh, to in order to get the airplanes and the crews where they needed to be to sort of start all over again, uh, kind of a, a pragmatic uh, uh, reboot of the system. Uh, and uh, so that cost them quite a bit. But uh, I, I forgot exactly how Southwest put it that, uh, okay, you know, we've kind of seen the error of our ways. We're, we're, uh, we're going to fix this and we're horribly embarrassed. And I, it sounds like um, uh, Secretary Pete wasn't buying this uh, because they made a, a real a great example, not a great example, but a, an awful example out of Southwest Airlines, which for years and years and years was the, you know, they were the, they were the, 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 the great people in the, uh, in the airline industry when there were all those bad Uniteds and Deltas and Americans and uh, who did I forget there somewhere? United Delta American... Uh, I don't know. Anyway, but that's it anymore. I guess that is. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, but uh, the DOT said, "Man, you broke so many customer uh, service, uh, uh, you know, rules, and you left hundreds of thousands of people stranded with ridiculous excuses and no notification. They they didn't cover anything and." Now we're going to make you pay. And uh, that's kind of what the, the DOT has done here. But what, what's, what's really interesting is the Southwest spin on this, that you know it, it was such a large sum of money, but it's such a good thing because those people who were affected are going to get money. I forget what the portion of the um, penalty is that has to go to the people who were stranded, etc. So um, – Southwest is sort of casually saying, you know, well, we wouldn't have done it, but 
since we're being made to, you guys get to reap the benefits well, a year later. But yeah, <laughs> and there were there were I guess there were three main areas of the uh, uh, consumer protection laws that the DOT said uh, or found that. Southwest violated. Uh, one was failing to provide adequate customer service assistance, and this goes to the fact that uh, people, uh, uh, flyers were trying to contact customer service. Uh, they had busy signals. They waited in queue for hours and so forth. Uh, that's that's so. That's the first one. The second one is failing to provide prompt flight status notifications. Um, it, it said that um, uh, many of the uh, passengers didn't find out that their flight had been canceled until after they arrived at the airport. And then the, the third area was failing to provide refunds in a prompt and proper man- uh, manner. And the DOT investigation found that there were thousands of customers that were not promptly refunded. Also, uh, thousands of passengers were not provided refunds for the optional service fees, like pet fees or upgraded boarding, things like that that they had purchased but were never able to use uh, because of the delays and, and flight cancellations. So, yeah, I guess this is a uh, kind of a clear warning for uh, not just Southwest, but the, you know, the industry as a whole. That you've got to step up to your responsibilities when it comes to um, supporting your customers. We're talking to you, United. <laughs> and aren't the but, rules in the EU a lot more consumer protection? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Sure, but it, but in Southwest's defense here, nobody could have been prepared for the the deluge of of customer service calls and emails and texts and everything else that they received. I mean, it would have overwhelmed any airlines system. It's not an excuse. It's just reality. But I don't think that to this day, they could still cope with that many at one time. Uh, but but I, I hope the folks at Southwest uh, have learned their lesson. I mean, Herb Kelleher is probably turning over in his grave uh, when he reads this. Mm-hmm. All right. One, uh, just one quick one. Um, Micah sent this into a 600 U.S. planes crashed in the Himalayas during World War II. A new museum shows the artifacts. Uh, this is from NPR. And uh, apparently, and I'm sure David knows this, that there were a, a lot of flights over the Himalayas in the Second World War. It was called flying the hump. The hump, right, over the, over the mountains. It was primarily to support the China Burma Th- India Theater, or the C- uh, CBI, and a lot of it was to fly from India over the Himalayas into China to support the Chinese who were fighting the Japanese as a second front. And uh, according to the NPR piece here, but besides that, uh, that being six hundred planes that crashed, they estimated that. 1,500 pilots and passengers were killed in those, uh, in those planes trying to fly the hump. And they talk about some of the reasons for it. Some, sometimes uh, it, it was incorrect maps. Uh, could be uh, weather-related issues. Uh, also, uh, flying at high altitudes, obviously, to get over the Himalayas. And a lot of these aircraft were not even pressurized. But um, so I, I guess that we've uh, seen a group here or somebody that has 
gone through the area, interviewed locals, they've located wreckage, they've collected artifacts and so forth. The The museum is going to be in India, I think, but the article never mentions the, the name of the of the museum, so uh, we can't help you with, you know, specifically what it is or how to get in touch with them. But it's an interesting project. It is definitely an unsung theater of operations in World War II. Um, probably the most famous um, group to come out of that was the AVG or the Flying Tigers. Sure, and all of that troop. All of that support for fuel, it was primarily fuel and supplies to go over the hump, was to support the um, Chinese nationalist forces against Japan and the Flying Tigers. So it's a little bit like the Aleutians. There there are campaigns in the Pacific that are less no, wildly known than, than, than most – you know, other than the uh, standard island campaign, but we were fighting in Asia um, and Southwest Asia. So, you know, and part of the other part of that was delivering aircraft into the Soviet Union at the time, which was going through that, those areas also. So Hmm. a good museum supporting all of that would be um, here in the States probably also would be a good idea. I know that the Air Mobility Command Museum here in um, Delaware down at um, Dover has um, a small exhibit and as well as the Air Force Museum, but it's clearly an unsung heroes. The the hero of the theater, um, we don't have a lot of these days, if unless you want to go up to um, northern Canada or – Virginia, and that's that was the C-46s. They tended to be the primary aircraft that flew those missions. Um, they were bigger, faster, stronger than um, the C-47 or the DC-3. Um, the Curtis, Fort, Curtis C-46 Commando was the hero of that theater. Again, we're speaking with Nathan Dickstein, Managing Director and uh, Head of Aerospace Leasing with AE Industrial. Uh, again, Nathan, welcome to the Airplane Geeks. Maybe maybe we can start off by uh, talking a little bit about uh, sort of the current state. And, uh, you know, we've had this, uh, this pandemic. We've had this big disruptions to the uh, commercial aviation world as a result of that. Things are starting to improve. How does all that relate to to leasing these days from the standpoint of the industry and the airlines? It's all relative to, to leasing. I mean, these events and these shocks as the airlines plan their fleet and, and new deliveries and refleeting, it's it's completely changed the landscape on, on how they're operating and thinking. You know, today we you see the, the passenger traffic demand coming back from COVID, probably faster than anyone anticipated that outside of Asia Pacific, you know, intra-Europe, domestic US, transatlantic is all back above or right near 2019 pre-COVID levels. You couple that on the supply side with Boeing and Airbus essentially shutting down their their production lines during COVID and the global network of suppliers and sub-suppliers turning all that back on in the supply chain, how challenging that's been. Uh, there's been a real glut new aircraft, which has created this whole increased demand and, and searching for 
you know, current tech aircraft and engines. So are the uh, are the airlines, for example, uh, looking to leases to compensate for problems that they have? Yeah, I think, you know, from that perspective, you're seeing two things. You're seeing aircraft that are already in their fleet that they lease that probably in all good intentions, they plan to return and redeliver once they hit a certain age. You're seeing them keep aircraft beyond probably their fleet plan thought they would. And on top of that, a lot of these airlines are searching for additional used aircraft, even airlines, you know, some of the majors that that never have inducted used aircraft into their fleet before. It's it's quite a different market now. And are they doing that because they, in some cases, because they can't get new aircraft, so they're kind of forced to look in the, the lease market? Yeah, exactly. Obviously, they've planned a route network around uh, a delivery stream and a certain fleet. And as those deliveries have been delayed, um, they don't really have other choices Yeah, other than cutting capacity. And from the lessor's standpoint, how do you forecast demand for leased aircraft? I mean, this is it just, you know, trying to polish up the crystal ball? <laughs> it's, I mean, there's no perfect science to it. It's definitely an art, but we look at current fleets. You can gauge, you know, aircraft have regular maintenance events a lot of times on the airframe that recur in a certain time period and you can take a estimated guess on when they're phasing out or when new aircraft are coming into an airline and, and kind of triangulate it like that mm -hmm. yeah you mentioned uh i think uh, maintenance um having been in the you know the engine maintenance part of the business for a few years uh, I, i'm kind of familiar with that but for for people who who aren't uh maybe describe how uh, maintenance uh, reserves work and that whole kind of process for, you know, who pays for the maintenance and and how that money is, uh, you know, is, is collected or set aside. Sure. You're absolutely right. Um, especially where we invest in older aircraft, it's all about the engines, all the values in the engines. But yeah, the aircraft leases, they're, they're a unique asset class. And essentially, in elite, when you lease an aircraft to an airline, you're getting two cash flows. One is just the rent and the lease rent. It's typically going to be a fixed amount for a set term, the lease paid the same day every month. Now on top of that, the airline's going to compensate you for the maintenance life it's using on an aircraft. So, you know, in a month, every flight hour, it's flying every flight cycle, a takeoff and landing, just a general calendar month, they're going to pay a rate. You know, the very best airlines will basically pay that at the end of the lease in one big lump sum. And everyone else kind of pays it to you monthly in arrears as they fly. The operator is paying for the maintenance in the end by, you know, whatever method um, they utilize. Like you say, pay as you go or pay at the end. But Yeah, exactly. They're, they're compensating the owner for the time they use on the aircraft. Um, no different if you leased a car and you paid per mile driven or, or something like that, but just broken down by the engines and airframe and the heavy maintenance items, the landing gear. Uh, the landing gear. Yeah, probably the engine and the the engines and the landing gear are probably the most complex or, or maybe most valuable asset or portion of the total asset. Yeah, and the engines have two components, just the general refurbishment of the engines and then also the life-limited parts in the engines. But yeah, exactly. Right, right. Can you um, tell us uh, a little bit about how the the different aviation uh, leasing companies 
compare? Now, I'm, I'm not asking you to, you know, name competitors, uh, but are there different, I mean, you can if you like, but are there different uh, kind of categories or classes or, is, or is, en- is aircraft leasing kind of a homogeneous sort of industry? Probably from afar, it looks <laughs> homogeneous, but when you when you're working in it every day, it breaks down into a bunch of different subsets. I think, um, you know, the easiest one is people focus on newer aircraft, maybe placing speculative orders with Airbus or Boeing and then placing those orders and leasing it. Um, and then people focus like us on older aircraft and engines where the aircraft's already been operating sometimes for 10 to 15 years before we're buying it. Maybe it's traded hands between leasing companies or the airline owned it and, and sold it. So there's a lot of different, um, you know, types of leasing companies, probably over 150 leasing companies if you looked at the whole market, but very focused by what, you know, types of aircraft they invest in, narrow bodies versus wide bodies, and, and mainly the age of the aircraft. And so um, AE, as you mentioned, is uh, more focused on the older aircraft, used air- aircraft rather than rather than new was there a conscious decision to go after that market segment or uh, is there, you know, some, something that uh, you saw that others didn't or that it was uncovered by other companies? No, I'd say at a super high level, when you're investing in new aircraft, it's really a cost of capital game, how cheap the financing you are raising is and the spread you're making from that financing to your lease rate. That's why on the newer side, you see, you know, a lot of financial players where they're using capital markets, issuing bonds, um, ABS uh, securities to own aircraft. On the older side, it's definitely more your metal guys who are earning their return by managing those maintenance reserves and maintenance events. And that really is the, the genesis of AE as a firm. You know, we were founded about 25 years ago by, by Brian Rowe, who was head of GE Aviation for 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 nearly two decades and, and you know as a firm we really have deep aerospace roots so it's really playing into to the expertise of the firm i didn't know that that was the uh the origin i you know i know know him well not personally but i know of him but uh yeah i didn't know that that was the origin of the company that's how it started i mean it's it's grown today we have about 85 employees, you know, diverse experience, operational resources. We have ex-Boeing employees, like a bunch of ex-GE employees. Um, so it's a great it's a great pool of knowledge and an investor base for when we're looking at older aircraft. We know we have people who built the engines, operated the engines, maintained the engines, tore the engines down and sold the parts, everything from start to finish. Yeah, that's fantastic. You must have great company picnics or something uh, with, with, you know, with that, with that kind of cross-section, uh, probably a lot of war stories. And- I was going to say, everyone in aviation has their war stories. We just, we just know how old you are by what aircraft type you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Telling us you sold an L-1011, we know, we know it's been a while. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You, you're, uh, you're pegged. And um, you're, you're involved in not just commercial aviation, right? Yeah, exactly. So as you mentioned, we're doing kind of a broader aerospace leasing strategy, which which is pretty unique in that we're investing in commercial aviation, business aviation, and we call it special mission. It's it's aircraft that are modified and operating on government contracts. Hmm. But the idea is these are places that AE has already invested in and, and spaces we've played in for years. So it's really pulling all of that 
knowledge together, but just in a simplified leasing product. And I mean, what are some examples of, of the sort of specialty missions? Yeah, it, it's a really broad market, kind of a catch-all for, for just, you know, normal aircraft, fixed wing, even helicopter that are modified for government contracts. So, you know, think of things like search and rescue, reconnaissance, surveillance, um, medevac, aerial firefighting, um, anything like that where the aircraft's being modified. And, and for us, is really going on a government-like contract, whether it's state, federal, or, or foreign. Mm-hmm. Is the motivation for you know those operators or, or the government to to lease similar to the case with commercial airlines, or do they have kind of a different a different motivation to look towards leasing? I would say you know leasing is a is a really flexible solution. I mean, obviously budgets are always strained. That initial upfront expenditure to buy an aircraft and modify it. Um, you know, not everyone has that capability. So leasing them, basically paying for it over a term is, is beneficial. And also the ability to just hand the aircraft back at the end of the lease. And, you know, maybe they want a new aircraft or a different type of aircraft or they're, you know, they're doing a project that's a fixed amount of time and then they want a different modification for a different product. It's, it's very flexible. And when they return an aircraft, when the lease is, is over, is completed, then you you have the aircraft, right? You have to find a new home for it. Is that uh, is that a challenge? Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a whole industry of return conditions that you know probably started years ago as half a page and has spawned in these lease agreements now to to a whole multi page section on how the aircraft has to be and what condition and the interior and the painting. But yeah, there's you know releasing and finding a new home and transitioning it from one operator to another operator. Um, as well as, you know, for us on the older aircraft, we're not really moving it between operators, but at the end of the lease, we'll tear it down and sell it for parts, or you can just take the engines and we'll lease the engines out to airline, you know, without the airframe. And and that spare engine market is, is a huge market of engine leases. Right, right. So, so people don't do in airline industry or in the large aircraft industry, what some people in, in automobile leasing might be that at the end of the lease, they go, well, you know, it's in pretty good shape. Maybe I'll just, I'll just buy it. Uh, I mean, they, they don't think about that, do they? Or in this, in, in this era, I guess in this <laughs> era of short, there's short of airplanes. Do people think of buying the airplane? You know, some, it, it does happen. It, it's our industry is so bespoke and, and, I guess, non-standardized. And that's how a lot of us can exist that it's definitely a conversation at the end of the lease. If the airline wants to buy it, why spend, you know, a a bunch of money to just hand the aircraft back if they want to keep operating it. But, you know, a a lot of them hand it back as they want newer aircraft or they're transitioning out or their fleet plan that allows them to remove, or they don't like the, as an aircraft gets older, the more frequent maintenance uh, schedule. Hmm. Uh, Nathan, where does the money come from? Uh, does the uh, leasing company have just piles of cash around to, to buy airplanes or are there investors that, uh, you know, fund these acquisitions? Where does the money come from? Yeah, it's, it's a mix too. Um, again, depending on strategy, some, some of the big leasing companies are publicly traded, so you can go buy stock in them. Um, you know, and they're issuing a lot of bonds, uh, 
you know, very attractive debt financing. So a lot of the money's coming through these bonds. And, you know, for investors like us, there's a, a really large pool of mainly institutional investors who like aircraft as an asset class and kind of how it diversifies and is uncorrelated to other asset classes and has a lot of, you know, real estate like characteristics with the benefit of being a mobile asset you can move around the world. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Well, you mentioned, um, Nathan, the number of employees in the 60s or something like that or 80s? Yeah, in the mid-80s. Mid-80s. So, and then you you also described that uh, it seems like a number of them come from different areas of the industry. Is is that where most employees uh, come from? other other companies or other other segments of the aviation industry or are you also higher out of college we it, it's a real mix so you know everyone at the firm has a real passion for the for the space and a lot of them have worked in prior experiences at manufacturers um sometimes universities um sorry I meant parts companies and airline operators and then come to our firm as whether whether they're investors or operating once we own businesses or assets or things like that. And then we do hire younger people. Typically they have, you know, at an associate level, a few years experience, whether it's in finance or aviation, and then they join our firm. You know, um, when, uh, when I started working at Pratt and Whitney back in the um, <coughs> late seventies, I was kind of surprised to find that a lot of people who worked there were not interested, or I should say, are not were not passionate about aviation. You know, they were passionate about finance, they were passionate about engineering, or they were patch- passionate about purchasing, or you know, they had their their functional functional groups. Um, and when you th- you know when you think about it, it, it kind of makes sense when you're talking about a you know a large you know a Fortune fifty corporation basically um but um at your company it sounds like they're aviation people is is that i mean is that a fair kind of assessment you know that you're you're working with a group of people who are passionate about aviation well i think that's kind of the fun thing about our industry is it doesn't seem like something you just fall into everyone has a story how they got interested you know from when they were a kid um, similar, like, you know, similar to my background, but yeah, at AE, everyone is really passionate about it. You know, they might not be as in different aspects of it as passionate about being a private pilot, but they're more interested in the maintenance side of things or the parts and the components, but, but everyone likes the space. Yeah. That, that's kind of what I thought. And how about you, how about your path here? Now we'll have those of you listening, we'll have uh, more uh, biographical information about Nathan in the show notes. Um, but maybe Nathan, tell us a little bit about sort of your path to where you are today. Sure. You know, for me, I, I've been interested in aviation since I was little. I, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, right near uh, a general aviation airport, Don Scott. So, mm. you know, from biking over there when I don't know, I was, you know, got my training wheels off essentially and watching the planes to building into a career. I never would have thought if you rewinded 20 years that that was even possible, but, you know, coming out of school, I graduated in 2009 was a tough job market. I didn't even know aircraft leasing existed. So 
took a little bit of perseverance and kind of worked my way through. I started at a leasing company, was based in Europe for six years, and then moved over into the investment fund world. Um, always been investing in, in older aircraft and engines and, and joined AE when they started this leasing business in, in the start of 2020. And any trends that you see? Where do you where do you think this uh, this business is going in the in the future? Continuing on similar to the way it is, or do you think are there any big forces uh, circling about to to make changes, or anything in the you know in, industry that's about to transform things, or or does it keep going? I wonder if you know if introduction of new technologies kind of shakes things up too. So when you had the you know the geared turbo fan and the and the leap engines and you know and, and all of that that spawned a, a lot of changes in commercial aviation um I don't, you know we're we're looking to be carbon neutral by 2050 i guess there are new technologies out there unducted fans and blended you know wing bodies and trust this and that and nasa's working on uh, well, and others, obviously, boom on uh, supersonic aircraft. With all that kind of thing going on, I mean, what does the future look like? I mean, personally, I think for for leasing, it's growing. It's already fifty percent of the market. Just in general, you know, airlines are cash constrained businesses. It's seasonal. It's cyclical. Um, Owning the physical assets of aircraft is just very consuming on an airline's balance sheet. So having leasing is is growing as an attractive option to finance their fleet. As far as the industry as a whole, I mean, you've hit on a lot of key topics. Sustainability is is a big one. And the new technology is, is undoubtedly more fuel efficient. And all airlines are pushing towards that. And everyone kind of plays their role in that process. You know, for us, it's managing the life out of the existing assets and helping airlines phase out of their current technology as they prepare themselves to take delivery of the new technology. Nathan, your your comments just made me think of a question. Um, sure. What's the average lease? Do they come on for five years? Do they? Can they? If there's an uptick and they know they've got an increase in like the summer, can you get like a nine month? Le- I mean, what, what what do your leases normally look like? They're all fairly long term. So like a new aircraft is going to be leased for eight to 12 years right off the production line. And then once it gets to its second or third lease, they'll start getting shorter. Um, a lot of times geared towards maintenance events. So it can be you know, second leases can range from like six years to maybe as short as three years. But, you know, the the cost of transitioning an aircraft and reconfiguring an aircraft, you won't see leases shorter than that, really, especially, you know, seasonal. Um, it, it just won't be worth it. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Good question, David. Rob, anything on your mind? So I'm, I'm curious when uh, you, you mentioned that you uh, are in the business aviation spectrum as well uh are leases uh obviously shorter uh for uh for the bizav aircraft are they not i'd say it's a mix depending again on age and um but it, it is a different market obviously these are non-revenue earning assets like for an airline and there's a lot more configurations there's 
five major manufacturers, give or take, versus just Airbus and Boeing on the commercial side. So there are a complete different set of dynamics in there. But yeah, I'd, I'd say the, the leases are, are in the kind of three to six year range. Are, do, I, and again, I don't know if business aviation actually works the same way, but in, in the airline industry, as I understand it, a, an airline would go to a leaser and say, hey, look, I need, a, I need five 787s. Uh, what can you do for me? And, and you guys negotiate with the OEM. Is that how it's normally done? Yes. Yeah, so on the commercial side, it can be done a few ways. So a lot of times the airline will go to Airbus or Boeing and make a large order for 50, 100 aircraft. And then as they deliver, we'll sell them to leasing companies uh, subject to a lease with that airline for for um, you know several years. Or the large leasing companies will go and order 100 aircraft speculatively and then place them out at a host of different airlines as they deliver. So that if I if I want to order my uh, my new uh, Gulfstream G seven hundred, I should go to Gulfstream first and tell them I want one, and then come to you and say, so how can you help me pay for this thing, or in a reasonable way? I think that's typically how it works because then you get to configure the aircraft, you know, exactly how you prefer, versus having kind of a standardized aircraft being spec built that you're then stepping into so going going back to that crazy car analogy again i mean when when we lease a car we always have to give them a a a chunk of cash down to you know sort of help offset the capital cost i mean on a say a 75 million dollar business jet a gulfstream what would the company typically have to put down in order to uh initiate a lease uh, for their airplane, I mean, yeah, I guess completely different than than how like the cars are structured. So like, on the commercial side, it will be financed a hundred percent. The airline won't put any oh. money down. Perhaps they'll have some PDP like pre delivery payments they'll make that then they'll get back when the aircraft delivers as part of the sale and lease back. But no, there's no money down. They will pay a security deposit of a few months' rent is typical, but but I think that's the attractive option for a lot of these operators, whether it's business jet or, or commercial aviation, is um, you know that upfront expense is really offset by working with a leasing company. So Max, no, no money down. I mean, so don't you think we can we can buy our our jet now and <laughs> yeah, could our could our cash flow handle it? Or? You you spec out the plane, Rob, and we'll take it. Oh yeah, and we'll take it from there. Uh, yeah, right. obviously be, because of that, there's <laughs> I guess you raise a good point a a good amount of credit due diligence uh, on creditworthiness of the operator. <laughs> See, that's where we fall down, Rob. That's where it all. Just <laughs> yeah, I was just apart. going to say that might slow us down just a little bit. But that's also, uh, Dathan, how, uh, you know, these uh, startups, particularly an LCC kind of a startup, can go from no aircraft to 50 or 100 aircraft, right? Because the, the their, cost, their upfront cost is... Uh, minimal. Is yeah. minimal, right, for the, uh, for, for the aircraft. Think about it like this, and from one, the operator is an investor in the space... A unique thing about commercial aircraft is the duopoly of manufacturers. You have Airbus and Boeing above a certain seat size and no one else. 
So you'll see a lot of what you're talking about, Max, on the narrow body side. Because if you have an A320 or 737, there's only so much you can do with it. The interior, the layouts are all um, relatively standard and easy to transition. So, you know, a lot of people take bets on an operator um, performing because if not, you can move that aircraft with minimal expense and redeploy it globally. You don't see that so much on the wide body side because everyone has like their bespoke business class cabins, their, you know, lavatories and galleys laid out slightly separate, you know, different that um, if you had to transition it, the cost can be 10 times more than, than a narrow body. So mm. definitely an effect is why you see a, lar- a lot of these large low cost carriers with these big orders because people are willing to finance them. Yeah, for sure. And obviously you get the economies of scale when they make these large orders that you can step in at, at better pricing than if you were to order one or two. Sure, sure, of course. When all the aircraft got stuck over in uh, in Russia a uh, year or two ago, I mean, and some some companies took a real hit because they could not get their airplane back and, uh, and the you know, the Russians uh, re-tagged them and all that. But I mean... It, did that really hurt the leasing market significantly or was it a, a blip? I, I don't have any, any context for anything like that. I mean, there, there's no doubt it was a shock to the industry given it's one of the first times, uh, obviously, the whole industry is underwritten by the ability of foreign asset owners to enforce their rights on assets. And there's things called like the Cape Town Convention, how you can deregister and move assets. So it was the first, you know, unprecedented to have something like this. Uh, I think, you know, as that's transpired over the past nearly two years, you're actually seeing kind of the resilience of the industry. So why they had these upfront hits, you're seeing a lot of, of the insurance companies settling or having payouts or even sometimes the Russian airlines working to settle or return the aircraft um, for a variety of reasons. But But it's been a really... You, you know, obviously through COVID and then this, uh, an interesting thing, but it's really proven the, the success of the industry. Okay, thanks. Well, it's a fascinating uh, part of the overall aviation industry. That's that's for sure. And Nathan, where can uh, people learn more about AE Industrial? Probably at the webpage? Yeah, there's a lot of stuff on our webpage, our LinkedIn. We have articles published, thought pieces. You can learn about investments we've made and companies we own. A real, a real mix across the, um, you know, aerospace, government services, and defense markets. And the the website is aeroequity.com. That's right. All right, Nathan. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's always it's always interesting to learn something new about a, you know, a, an aspect of this industry. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. Enjoy the conversation. All right. What's up with the geeks? I think the big news, Rob, is our uh, little contest here for people's favorite aviation movie. Did we give it away as to what the best movie uh, turned out to be? Not yet. No, we haven't finished yet because... Oh, and, and you didn't want me to tell them either, did you? I didn't want them to tell you what yours is. <laughs> right. Now, we still have another, uh, we still have another week of... Uh, to go and and we'd still like to and I know I've heard in private emails what a rat fink I was being by making people choose one movie 
okay, I guess if I had to rethink that, maybe I would have no, done it no. a little differently. But uh, I'd like to pick one approach. It, but it it is hard. I do realize that. But still, please send a uh, uh, send a note to the uh, geeks at airplanegeeks.com. Tell us what your favorite uh, aviation movie was that does not include Top Gun, which, I, you know, honest to goodness, I thought Top Gun was good, but I never thought it was incredible. I, I it just never did, but apparently uh, a, a lot of other people did. But be that as it may, please let us know before the end of uh, the end of the year what your favorite movie is. And uh, early uh, in twenty twenty four, we're going to have a a drawing for a fifty dollar gift card, and uh, we'd also like to hear why you like the movie that you chose. Uh, that That's because we're going to do a movie segment in 2024. And we're getting a lot of responses. I, I think just since this morning when I thought I was all current with the, you know, the spreadsheet we're putting all these into, and there's six or eight more that just came in today. So people are, are really responding. Uh, and again, um, very little overlap. Everybody... Yeah, there is no one clear winner, not even close. Everybody has uh, pretty much a different favorite aviation movie, and um, and that's really exciting. And we're going to collect them all. As Rob said, we'll have a, an episode where we talk about all these, and and we'll build a, a big uh, playlist for you if you will, if you like, so that you can browse through it and find some uh, movies. Some of these movies, Rob, I had never heard of before. I was unfamiliar with, so I'm I'm learning about a lot of. A lot of new movies to get out there and watch. Oh, there's some classics in there. And I must admit, when I saw some of the titles, I thought, oh, right. Yeah, I'd yeah. forgotten about that one. That was a great one. Yes. Oh, and that one. Oh, my God. And it goes on and on. So I think we're going to have quite a lot of fun with that. And uh, But on another uh, passing topic, I think I may have asked this once a few years ago, but I'm curious how many of our listeners are uh, flight simulation folks uh, yeah, that you play with uh, uh, either uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator or uh, X Plane uh, 11 or 12. And I would just like to know uh, you don't, if you want to send it to the, uh, uh, the geeks at airplanegeeks.com or you could send it to me directly at rob at jetwine.com. And I would just love to, to dialogue a little with. Uh, some folks about flight simming because honestly my efforts uh even with all the experience i have boy flight sims not that easy to operate uh because it takes a completely different mindset uh uh to uh operate one of these that it does i think this is harder than an airplane but anyway i just thought i'd throw that out okay david anything for you or are you all set I'm all set. I'm wrapped. I, I'm I'm checking out for the rest of the year. It's okay. Been, it it it's in all fairness, it's been a very long year for me, um, health wise. Um, so, um, a couple of people know what's going on, but um, I'll be fine. Um, but I I have had people reach out to me, and I appreciate that. But yeah, it's. I'm ready for 2024. 2023 can be over. Yes. Okay. All right, then. On to some listener mail. Travis wrote to us. This was great. 
Travis says, I'm a longtime listener. I love your show and its wide-reaching coverage of aviation in so many of its forms. He says, in your latest episode, which at the time was 778, you guys discussed the V-22's stand-down and the uh, conversation turned to its accident rate relative to other military aircraft. Well, Travis is a Air Force MQ-9 pilot. He said one of his past assignments was as an aviation mishap investigator. Ooh, that's interesting. One of the products produced at the Air Force Safety Center are annual statistics to include mishap rates by airframe, and they're posted for the public at a website that we'll put in the show notes because it's too long. You can't say it. This is an amazing resource. I had no idea this thing existed. And so he says, while the currently posted information is only through fiscal year 2021, nothing in the government is fast, he says, <laughs> here are the Air Force's V-22 Class A mishap rate statistics and a few other airframes for comparison. Now, uh, so what's the, what's the mishap rate? Well, it's defined here as the number of Class A mishaps per 100,000 flight hours. Okay, so it's mishaps per flight hours, which I think is a good a good measure, and uh, allows you to compare different different aircraft. Do Do we know what a class A mishap is? Oh, that's a good question. So that, as I recall, that's like the a full hull loss. Is that right, David? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Full hull loss. Um, so this is the big ones. So each of these, and we've got them for the V-22, as well as for the F-35, the F-22, the F-16, and just for interest, the MQ-9. And for each of them, uh, we, we see here um, the rate for the past five years, for the past 10 years, and over the lifetime. So the V-22 um, Osprey, for the past five years, it's mishap rate is 7.30. Over the past 10 years, it's 5.8. And over its lifetime, it's 6.0. Which I thought was pretty high. 5.08. That's when David and I were talking about that last week. I thought, man, that V-22 is not, it's not doing well. But, but it, you know, traffic, we have to call them Rolex. Uh, but when Rolex uh, sent us this data and I looked at some of the other aircraft, like how safe the F-16 was uh, relatively, but but the F-22, holy smokes, David, what is wrong with that airplane? I don't, I don't know enough about um, it. It's, can we say the argument that I've said multiple times about the V-22 it's modern technology. It's first-generation technology, even though it's the F-22 is a fifth-generation fighter. Um, it's state When you put bleeding-edge technology into an aircraft, you tend to have to learn as it goes, um, you know. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of – there's not um, – what, what will – probably make the v22 totals more is this is only air force um mm, yes. if you started rolling in the other the uh, other factors like the marine corps losses which i'm sure there's an ax way to access that i'm sure that um that also would be 
um, an issue. So we have to say what the number is because we, we, we didn't say that what the number is for the F-22, right? So the, for the V-22 Osprey, for the past five years, we said that was 7.30. For the F-22, for the past five years, it's 11.61. So that's why Rob, you know, said what's going on with the, with the F-22. Um, lifetime is 7.80 compared to 6.0 for the F-22. But the F-35 is low. The F-35 for the past five years is 1.98. That's the lowest of all of these that we're looking at right here. Lifetime is 2.22. That's the mishap rate. Yeah, but, okay, one of the things that's in here is the F-16. Um, and just last week the f16 celebrated its 50th anniversary of its first flight so it would be interesting to go back and look at what the mishap rate was for the f16 in the late 70s because the a a mature aircraft that's 50 years old is going to have a lot less issues than an aircraft that is only 10 or 15 years old yeah yeah this all supplies my usual argument about from history and stuff is, you know, as a historian, I am a firm believer in there are lies, there are damn lies, and then there are statistics. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but so, are you saying that the F thirty five, I mean, in in its uh, first ten years, well, see how long have they been flying the thirty five? It's like 15 years now. Okay. Uh, but it, it seems as though someone learned something about uh, aircraft building uh, from the 22 that they they took, you know, they, that they incorporated into the F-35. Or am I reading something into it that doesn't fit? Um, there as far as I, the answer, the answer to that is again, it's how you want to look at it. Um, yes, the F thirty five is a far less comp. The F thirty five A, which is what the Air Force flies, is a less complicated aircraft than the F twenty two. Now, if you started talking about the F thirty five B, which is the Marine Corps one that that has got the the ability to do vertical takeoff, vertical short takeoff and landing. Um, that has probably a higher miswrap rate because it's a far more sophisticated aircraft. Yeah, I think that that, that kind of resonates with me, David. That the my feeling is that the F twenty two represented more of a leap forward, at least in the kinds of technologies that would affect uh, mishaps, than was the case with the F thirty five. Like you say, a anyway. The F thirty five. I mean, it kind of brings more. Um, integration, you know, battlefield integration, or uh, I can't think of what the... The, the, the F-35 was, as far as an aircraft goes, is fairly um, simplistic. I mean, it's, it's, a, it, it's basically built on, it was built on the same line as the F-16. You know, it, it has that kind of thing. Um, where the F-35 has issues is all of its sophisticated electronics. Yeah, software. But not necessarily, not necessarily um, electronics that affect the, the flight control services. Anybody who's ever seen an F-22 demo, 
knows that the F-22 is capable of doing things that a lot of other aircraft aren't. That's right. Um, because of because of the um, vectored thrust and um, a lot of the computer-initiated um, flight controls. The F-35 has less of that, but more as a conventional battle space node. So yes. it, it is sort of – it's comparing apples and – or comparing apples and – not oranges, but apples and, or Granny Smith apples versus – a red delicious apple, the, right? And but Rob, you are have a point that there was also twenty plus years of maturation as far as the technology goes in the F twenty two that could be put into the F thirty five. Yeah. So if you're at all interested, even slightly, in any of this, uh, take a look at this page, this aviation statistics page from the Air Force Safety Center. They've got a lot of statistics by aircraft type. So they've got bombers, cargo, attack and fighters, trainers, helicopters, remotely piloted, um, and some other. They've also got engine-related mishap statistics or fighter engines for single-engine aircraft, twin-engine aircraft. There's a whole lot of information here that's really, really kind of fascinating if uh, this is the sort of thing that you're fascinated by, I guess. So have a look. And we'll have a link in the show notes. So uh, thanks, Rolex, for sending that in. Excellent, excellent. And and I also would like to know if, if they're taking on any any uh, experienced uh, pilots to fly the MQ-9 because I I have a flight sim operation here. Uh, I, I'm sure I could. It's it's just a jet thing. I mean, I'm I'm sure I could fly it, couldn't I? Uh, okay, well, you, you calling it a jet thing, Robert? Right. <laughs> you calling an MQ9 a jet thing just nullified you because it's a turboprop, right? Well, I I mean, but a turboprop is essentially a jet engine connected to a propeller, so that's <laughs> Close what enough. I meant, um, yeah. as opposed to what I said. Uh, okay, I'll just. To take my answer off the air. <laughs> All right. We uh, one other. We heard from our friend Mike. Uh, this is uh, Mike. Lives in Massachusetts. Flies the Sonics, and uh, I met. I have met him um, up in uh, Maine at the Spurwink Farms uh, fly-in, where he flew his uh, Sonics in, which is which is really really cool. Uh, but he writes, um, "Hi, geeks." In episode 777, you were talking about the Collings Foundation and their American Heritage Museum in Stowe, Massachusetts. It says the museum is actually in Hudson, but the larger grounds are in Stowe. And I don't know why I didn't think of him before. He says, I live in the next town over, so I'm very familiar with the place. So this is the museum. Micah ended up um, saying that, gee, this sounds like it's about halfway between um, Micah and myself. And so maybe we should uh, rendezvous at this museum at uh, at some point. So anyway, um, Mike writes, the museum is open Wednesday through Sunday, 10 to 5. Uh, your entrance to the museum starts with a short movie. Then you were led into the trenches of World War I, where you stand in the middle of it and watch the action going on around you. Sort of a life-sized diorama. Ooh, that's cool. Then you are let loose to the rest of the museum. It's dedicated to the American military in general, with some aviation and ships sprinkled in. It says there's even a real Iraqi Scud missile on its launcher. 
He says, there, there are always docents around who can uh, talk you through what you are seeing. And they also have special speakers throughout the year. He said, check out the events pages on their website. Uh, he says, the large and diverse airplane and automobile collections are in separate buildings, are not part of the museum, and are not available to view except on special event days or by appointment. If you make a good case for who and why the collection should be viewed outside of the special events. Uh, so, so this sounds like it'd be worthwhile to pay attention to these events so you get to see that part of it. So we, there's a YouTube video, uh, Collings Foundation Hangar, that will be in the show notes. And Mike says, the, the aviation and automobile collections are amazing, so it's worth coming to one of the special event days so you can see everything. What's even more amazing is many of the aircraft are airworthy, and the foundation has its own grass runway to fly off. Uh, when they have the, the special event days, there's usually a theme, and include various aircraft, tanks, armor vehicles, period encampments, etc. They're always attended by hundreds of people, so it's quite the day. Uh, and so uh, we have some more links. Uh, the, the museum's website is AmericanHeritageMuseum.org. There's also an events, uh, events page there. So um, very cool. A lot more information about uh, the museum that, uh, that we all didn't really know anything about whatsoever a few weeks ago. So appreciate the information from Mike. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm thinking I need to check this out. And I'm still amazed that I've driven past it literally hundreds of times over the years and didn't know it was there. All right. Well we'll close it out. We want to thank you for listening to the Airplane Geeks podcast, especially if you made it all the way this far. Our guest this episode was Nathan Tickstein, Managing Director and Head of Aerospace Leasing at AE Industrial Partners. And their website, again, is aeroequity.com. Of course, our website is airplanegeeks.com. You can find show notes for all of our episodes there. Be sure to check that out. We always have lots of links to the news stories we talked about, supporting information, lots of stuff in the show notes. Uh, you can reach us via email at thegeeks at airplanegeeks.com. Don't forget to send in your favorite aviation movie that's not Top Gun. Do that by December 31st, 2023, and we'll have an episode in January where we talk about those. All right. Let's see. David Vanderhoof, if people are looking for you, where should they look? Probably the best bet would be the American Helicopter Museum and Education Center in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Otherwise, you can find me out in the universe if you know how to spell Vanderhoof. And what's the website for the museum? Uh, helicoptermuseum.org. Very good. That makes sense. Boy, somebody was smart to get that, too, because uh, how many helicopter museums are there in the United States? Any idea? Uh, there's approximately three. I mean, we are the we're we're the we're the second largest. Uh, I mean, there's a larger one out in California, which is less of a museum and more of a collection. Um, uh -huh. And I can, which means that there's a lot of aircraft piled into a hangar, but not very much of a museum. Okay, there's a difference. All right, Rob Mark, where do folks find you? You find me at uh, jetwine.com all the time. I monitor the channel 24 hours a day. 
seven days a week, just waiting for people to email, text, or phone call me. So far, after going on 18 years, the phone has not rung. It's a lonely uh, existence. It's a lonely, it's a lonely life. <laughs> and uh, But seriously, uh, if people really uh, did tune in tonight because they expected me to sing uh, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, uh, I'm going to have to disappoint them because <clears throat> my vocal cords are not quite up to uh, a rendition of that old Christmas classic this year. And so, well, maybe next year. But, hey, Merry Christmas to everybody. Okay. And I'm Max Flight. You can find out where I hang out online at 30,000feet.com. And programming note, next week will be a Bits and Pieces episode. And we have a lot of really good stuff. This is going to be a fun episode. So uh, be sure to uh, to look for that Christmas week, uh, New Year's week. Uh, we'll pry, there might be something, but uh, most likely we'll take that off as well. And so otherwise we'll uh, see you in person or, or you can listen to us in person or whatever it is that you do with podcasts in January. In person. In person. So please join us next week for the bits and pieces. And then in January for more as we talk aviation on the Airplane Geeks podcast. Bye, everybody. Nighty night. Keep the blue side up. Thanks for listening this year and all the previous years. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. And we love you guys as listeners. Merry Christmas. Rob, anything on your mind? You're on mute. You're still on mute. <laughs> and and that was my question, actually. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious when uh, you, you mentioned that you uh, are in the business. Don't forget to send in your nomination or your favorite a, uh, aviation podcast but not Movie. Top Gun. Movie. You said podcast. I know I did, didn't I? <laughs> okay, let's let's take it from the top. Should we? Maybe we should do favorite. No, probably not. No, no, we, we might not like what, you know, don't answer ask well. questions you don't want to hear the answers exactly. to. Exactly.